Well, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, webcast on acute respiratory failure in uh, COVID-19 um, and patients under investigation as well. Um, we uh, are presenting this uh, as part of the offerings from the American College of Chest Physician COVID-19 Task Force, and super excited to have uh, three national experts on this topic. Um, first is Dr. John Kress, who we are uh, waiting to uh, join, uh, have him join the webinar uh, due to some technical difficulties, but he's a professor of medicine uh, at University of Chicago, the director of pulmonary and critical care procedure services, uh, the medical intensive care unit, and the program director for their fellowship. Um, our next uh, panelist is Dr. Kelly Cockett, who is the uh, assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at University of Nebraska Medicine and uh, within the Division of Infectious Diseases. She's the associate medical director for the Infection Control and Epidemiology program there and a co-director for the Digital Innovation and Social Media Strategy for the Division of Infectious Diseases along with uh, Dr. Marcellin who uh, is our uh, next panelist. Dr. Cockett's interests lie in uh, infections in the critically ill patients and um, CLABSIs as well as ventilator-associated pneumonia. So welcome, Dr. Cockett. Thank um, you. Dr. Marcellin, by the way, both of them have been fantastic mentors and colleagues, so I'm super excited to have you guys here. <laughs> Dr. Marcellin uh, is an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Internal Medicine, again at University of uh, Nebraska Medicine Division of Infectious Diseases. She's the associate medical director for the antimicrobial stewardship program and the co-director for the digital innovation and social media strategy for the Division of Infectious Diseases. Um, her particular interests lie in out, um, outpatient microbial stewardship, which I think is very neat because not certainly not enough attention across the globe and uh, within the critical care community as well as the medicine community on that topic. Uh, and she is a well-known leader in the space of healthcare disparities, um, focused in the field of infectious diseases, but overall as well, and works with a number of national experts on that topic. So welcome, both of you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. All right. So just a quick uh, few um, sort of uh, housekeeping things. If people have questions, please feel free to put them in the question tab and we'll be monitoring that. So uh, as we have time down the road in the webinar, I can uh, ask our experts. So uh, without any further delay, uh, let me as, let me get you guys started. So my first question, and this question comes from uh, my own trainees and uh, from a lot of uh, interactions I've seen on Twitter, um, this question is, you know, when should an intensivist or a physician or clinician taking care of uh, patients with COVID-19, when should they order a CAT scan of the chest? And this question, maybe Dr. Cockett would be a great person to ask because you have expertise in both ID as well as critical care. Sure, um, I'm happy to answer that from my perspective first. I think that you should have a very low threshold actually to get good chest imaging if there's any concern for um, COVID-19, particularly for those groups where there may be increased um, limitations on capacity or acquisition of a test because we know that those findings of the um, diffuse ground glass that evolve, particularly those peripheral types of ground glass, are very suggestive of COVID infection. So if your suspicion's there when you find that, that's very concerning, um, even in the absence of the capacity to get the test results. Um, 
And so I really would have a very low threshold to image people and get that information. The caveat to that, that we can't forget, is that there are patients who are positive who have negative chest imaging, especially early in the course or the when the infection is not as severe. So it is not something that is pathognomonic that can be used. You cannot hang your hat on a CT scan for the diagnosis. Obviously, just as many other things can cause ground glass, it is very suggestive in the right scenario, but it is not a slam dunk answer to the question. Of course, and as a follow-up to this, um, how often do you um, end up repeating imaging? Suppose you diagnose somebody in the ICU. Do you? What are your thoughts on getting daily X-rays? Daily X-rays have been a debatable thing for a long time. ICU. <laughs> so I think it depends on what's happening with your patient. If your patient's clinical course has changed markedly, one. Do you need the x-ray in a COVID-19 patient or PUI if you can do a bedside ultrasound? So have you already done ultrasounds? Do you have that capacity? Can you assess with that to avoid bringing more people into a room like our um, radiographers coming in to get those x-rays? If you can avoid that, that's clearly gonna be ideal for less exposures and less PPE burn for getting the x-ray. But if you need it, then and it's going to impact your clinical decisions, then I think you should appropriately get imaging. But I would not say that there's necessarily a clear indication that we need daily x-rays, just like has been true in the ICU in the past. Fair enough. Well, this is why I think we are uh, great friends, because I agree with you 100%. <laughs> I have to keep we have to keep resource utilization in mind. Um, Dr. Marcel, and actually I was um, going to ask you about the study. It's by uh, an author called Bernheim, um, obviously in 2020, but it talks about how 56% of early patients had a normal CAT scan. Um, so keeping in mind that there is certain sensitivity to the PCR, right, and there's Obviously, like Dr. Cockett has pointed out, you know, you can't use the imaging findings to rule out a diagnosis. So what's the initial approach, how to tie them in together? So I think it's important. I think it's a good question. And it's important to try to consider what an individual's presenting symptoms are and use that as sort of your guiding uh, principles for deciding on testing um, and triaging of different people. So if somebody comes in and they have no symptoms and um, they're asking to be tested, um, that's something that you would want to make sure that uh, you are using the tests appropriately, and that includes radiographic studies, right? Um, and so if, a, if somebody comes in and they have very clear-cut symptoms and you have a diagnosis of COVID-19 and they're generally um, stable, uh, it's you know, perhaps the going straight to the CT scan may not be necessary in that situation. Um, if they are you know, getting worse and you want to be assured that this is, could this be progression of COVID-19 or could there be something else that is going on, certainly that's a reasonable opportunity to think about getting testing at that point. But I think you have to kind of look at it based on what their symptoms are and how they're progressing and responding to some of the supportive care that you're giving. I think that's a reasonable uh, strategy for utilization of imaging. So um, continuing on with testing, um, Dr. Cockett, uh, for patients who are under investigation, right, or 
as you short form say PUI. Um, in these patients, if you've done uh, you know nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal swabs and they're negative, right, for COVID uh, nineteen, what else? And your clinical suspicion obviously is high for any number of reasons. Um, how, how what else can people do to rule out uh, the disease? Sure. So I think it's a great question and. One thing that I do want to point out, and I'm realizing there might be a little lag on the sound. I hope you guys can hear me okay. Um, I'm seeing a little feedback on my side. But the oropharyngeal swabs actually have fallen out of favor in a lot of facilities. They don't seem to have the same level of sensitivity and specificity across the board. So many places have just moved to the nasopharyngeal swab for upper respiratory tract um, detection. So keeping that also in mind, depending on if you're talking about both types of tests, make sure that you do have the NP swab. Um, our standard right now, and our standard fairly commonly across the country, is to repeat the NP swab first. So if your first one is negative, again, early on, we may have intermittent shedding. There's issues with the quality of the swab. If you don't have good epithelial cells on that swab with the sample, you can easily have what is presumed to be a false negative test, but it's because the quality of the sample's poor. Just like you would think of with a sputum sample for pneumonia, if you get a bunch of epithelial cells in there, we don't consider that high quality, right? Same scenario happens with that. So repeating the NP swab is very reasonable. We usually repeat it 24 to 48 hours after the first. Um, ideally, 20 if we have access to it. And then if, that, if you are still struggling, Obviously, you may have considered fridging of the chest to aid in those questions, but then moving towards a lower respiratory tract sample. So a um, spontaneous sputum can be assessed, and most places now that have the capacity to do the samples will accept some type of tracheal aspirate or a um, mini BAL or true bronchoscopic lavage um, sample and use that to detect it. The one caveat to those lower samples is not all the labs have validated those lower samples the way we would have in a historically more robust manner. Um, so I think there are some concerns there, but just like other viral illnesses, we know there's been discordance in the past where the MP swab could be negative and the lower tract is positive. Influenza is a great example of that. So keeping that in mind, if you are highly concerned, two NP swabs ideally, and at least one lower respiratory tract sample if you can get it. If I can Understood. also add, and Dr. Marcel, I think ahead. we're probably going to ask this is to answer the same question. But one one of the places where this kind of question can go is what's the utility of a serologic test in this situation? Mm -hmm. And um, to follow up on Dr. Cockett's explanation, I think it's important to really note that the while the serologic test can indicate that a person has been recently exposed to COVID-19, it cannot um, say for certain that a person has this um, infection right now because it re relies on antibody production. And so um, if these tests, the, the serologic assays are available and we don't have access to the traditional, the PCR testing, uh, and a person has clinical symptoms that are consistent and time-wise it falls in along the lines, then certainly you can make some um, you can make some determinations from those serologic tests, but it's not a it's not a test that is going to diagnose definite presence of disease now. And um, so that's something that should be considered as well. And I would add to that there are a few of the platforms out there that are using IGA 
as opposed to IgGM, IgM and IgG. And we all can, I think, agree that IgGs are reasonably reliable historically for an exposure. IgM is notoriously yes. difficult to use, and IgA, I'm not sure what the role of IgA testing is for this infection. So the platforms are very different. The sensitivity and specificity of those and the risk of cross-reaction with other antibodies is not well described yet. So I think we still have a lot of difficulty in running ser serologic tests, much for the reasons that um, Dr. Marcellin mentioned, but then also just the technology and getting the platforms up and running and know they're validated and reliable is a huge limitation. So it looks like we're going to be learning this a little bit in terms of, you know, what the true sensitivity and true specificity as well as predictive values are down the road uh, for different modalities. But moving right on into treatment, um, what are your thoughts about giving steroids? And, and before, I, I know you guys have thoughts on this, so I want to I want to quantify this question. What about giving steroids to patients who are intubated? with COVID-related ARDS, so specifically that population. And if you do go with that, if there's somewhere you can uh, you decide to do that, uh, how much do you use and for how long? Um, so we were talking a little bit about this offline too. You know, SCCM also had some guidance here and has not recommended the use of steroids. We've not routinely recommended the use of steroids in other scenarios for ARDS routinely. and right now we just don't have any proof that giving steroids in this scenario would work so the only caveat that i would use to that is if you have a patient who's intubated who's in shock and you would use it for the state of shock because of the vasopressor requirements or known adrenal insufficiency something else that has a clear-cut potential indication or recommendation and i know we can all debate clear-cut in sepsis and septic shock on steroids but in those scenarios, that is the only time I would use it, and I would move back towards that standard dosing that we've used for sepsis. There's not a particular dose that we know right now that will work to impact COVID-related ARDS, and we do know that we're already seeing lymphopenia and other immune system related issues with COVID. And to give a high steroid, also we have to remember that this virus uses both your um, lymphocytes, your T cell populations, but it also requires um, neutrophils for immunity. And giving high dose steroids without understanding it impacts the pathophysiology of the immune system. It impedes our neutrophil phagocytosis and impact. It may actually be incremental in this setting. So unless, unless we have data that can definitively show benefit, we inadvertently cause significant harm in these patients if we give steroids. So that's my perspective on it based on the data we have and what we know about the immune system interaction with this. And I don't know if Dr. Marcellin has more thoughts also. So I, I would agree Maybe and I would just ask add. Dr. Marcellin a more targeted question, Dr. Marcellin. Yeah. Sorry for interrupting you. What do you think you could add in on in uh, sort of experience from, you know, one SARS and MERS, and then what do we know about this from the time of influenza, even though they're not comparable necessarily, but you know, Maybe you could shed some you know, light on that. You know, that's exactly what I was going to add, um, honestly, that we, we have some uh, data from those other coronaviruses that we dealt with years ago that the 
um, the addition of the corticosteroids was not helpful. And in fact, with influenza, there are studies that show that there's increased mortality. And so even though we don't have a lot of data on this current pandemic and the use of corticosteroids for this virus, I would say based on the information that we have right now about other similar viruses or other pandemic-like viral uh, pneumonias, that the, the evidence is stacked against using corticosteroids as adjunct therapy. And most of the, most of the like SCCM and other um, bodies, organizations who are coming out with suggestions on what to do, even in, in the presence of scant evidence, are uniformly saying that um, corticosteroids should not be routinely added as, a, as an adjunct to um, supportive treatment for COVID-19. So I would agree with that. Got it. So maybe some thought there, though I, I will put out some numbers that, you know, you know how I'm obsessed with maintaining my online resource. And so looking at most studies that have come out, it seems like a significant majority of uh, critically ill patients do end up receiving steroids. So um, I'm hoping that down the line as, uh, you know, online repositories continue to study this, we'll find answers. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of a nice statistic. This is fresh off the uh, presses. And this is a study that came out today morning uh, in the Blue Journal um, by Dr. Wang out of China. And they looked at 344 patients in the critical care units uh, there. And the study is interesting because they actually tracked the 28-day mortality, unlike most previous critical care studies that you know, talk about a seven-day course, so most people are still in the ICU, so hard to say what it means. But this study found that uh, a significant, uh, the, the mortality wasn't as high as, you know, previously reported, somewhere in the 40% range. But what I liked uh, in the table was, um, which is going to lead to our next question, and I'm actually looking it up right now, is I want to say 80% and higher uh, patients received antiviral medications. So, question to you, right, is should we be using antivirals uh, for this, uh, Dr. Marcellin? And then if and if so, which ones? Maybe you, we can talk about the, maybe we'll, you know, leave the upcoming theories out. Maybe we'll talk about the common ones. What do you think? Okay, so uh, it's a great question. Obviously, in a, in a situation like this, we want to treat, we want to fix people. And if we can use things that are already available, that's a bonus, right? Um, there are a lot of ongoing studies right now, and some have been completed and some that are still um, enrolling patients and looking at it. And as of right now, there is not enough evidence to pick one antiviral medication that um, is the cure, the treatment for COVID-19. So there's there's different candidates. So what can we say about candidates? And actually, one of my one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Peter um, Peter Chin Hong over in um, UCSF, yesterday was on a, a COVID webinar, and I liked what he did, where he kind of looked at it in terms of the Olympics and gave different um, 
grades of metals depending on how good the evidence was for different types of treatments. And what was striking was that nobody got a gold medal. And that's because we haven't found the it cure yet, right? So the one that looks the most promising so far um, is remdesivir. So remdesivir is a broad spectrum antiviral. Um, it's a, it works by inhibiting RNA um, polymerase and it shuts down the viral replication and works well um, in vitro and actually was a potent inhibitor in vitro for SARS-1 and MERS as well um, and was actually developed in 2014 in response to the, the Ebola outbreak and so initial in vitro testing um, seemed to be uh, positive and promising and it moved on into uh, different, into humans in different clinical settings. Some were being used as compassionate use um, and clinical trials have been um, created now and are now enrolling um, across the country and across the world using remdesivir. So there's some early, um, um, positive and, and hopeful um, uh, reports of you know anecdotal cases of people being treated with remdesivir and um, and recovering and you know all of that is making everybody really hopeful but the fact of the matter is is we don't have a definitive um, randomized controlled trial result yet that shows that remdesivir is better than um, supportive care for treatment of COVID-19. So we hope it works, um, but it, the jury is still out and hopefully they won't deliberate for much longer here as we get more and more people that are becoming sick and are being um, evaluated in the trials. Um, it's, it's really important to make sure that even during during this pandemic, while we are hoping to try to fix as many people as possible, that we still try to um, engage in, in good uh, science so that we have the answer that we So that's from Desiree. I, I would say um, one of my, one of my uh, residents, um, uh, we co-authored a blog post uh, last week that looked at, reviewed some of these options and we sort of gave each of these options hope levels and so for remdesivir we gave it um, moderate to high hope and that was the highest hope level that we gave to any of the things that we reviewed and so I feel good about it. Um, Lopinavir, ritonavir, or Kalitra, that's the other one that people are talking about. So this is an antiretroviral medication. We used to use it a lot. Um, there are some places across the world that are still using it. Um, and it is a protease inhibitor combination. Um, and it um, is... It, it's been shown that there was some um, efficacy in in marmosets that were infected with the MERS virus, and um, in vitro activity, albeit um, less. Uh, activity uh, in vitro against uh, SARS-1 uh, compared with remdesivir, but there were some early um, retrospective reviews that suggested 
there were improved outcomes when you used um, this combination with early treatment versus giving it later. Uh, but a very recently um, published open-label randomized control trial looked at the lopinavir, ritonavir, and did not really see any um, clinically significant uh, difference in um, improvement, clinical improvement, wasn't really any difference in um, detection of RNA levels between groups, no difference in mortality um, between lopinavir, ritonavir, and standard of care supportive treatment. And so this one, I would say, um, we, we gave it a hope level low. Um, there's still uh, people that are using it clinically, um, and so likely we'll see more anecdotal data that's coming out. But, you know, the, the trials that have been done to really study this question have not uh, given us a lot of hope about how um, useful lopinavir, ritonavir is really going to be. Hmm. Talking about hope levels, I'm going to segue on this, um, Dr. Cockett. So talking about non-antiviral antivirals, you know, uh, and and I don't I don't want to spend too much time on this. Um, I, I just want to say this that so far the, I've seen a lot of anecdotalness to the use of hydroxychloroquine. Right, yeah. and anecdotes are a great place to start, but we all have known how some of the most sort of well-practiced evidence in medicine has reversed down the line when we have right. found accurate data. So I just want to ask you this quickly about hydroxychloroquine. There's some doubts about whether it should be deployed early in the disease, and maybe that's why we are not seeing benefit. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask you about the lack of evidence that is there. I'm just asking you, do you think there that might pan out, that maybe using it super early on um, could have benefits? I think timing um, of initiation of therapy for any drug is probably going to be critical in efficacy. We know viral replication is very high early on, and if we are waiting until the patients are severely ill and we are days into therapy, I think it becomes much harder to see what therapies could be potentially efficacious. And in part, again, because we know that there's a huge immune response to this. There's a lot of inflammation that's happening. And we know with all of the studies we've done for ARDS, if we're talking about going that far down the road, once you've already hit ARDS, we're not going to have an antiviral or another medication that's going to reverse that process. And that process is not unique necessarily to this virus in general, although there may be some unique pathophysiologic issues that are coming up, particularly with COVID-19, that we all can kind of debate and struggle with, with regarding um, thrombotic impact that is evolving with a lot of data surrounding that. So some of our pathophysiology might be a little different and maybe we will find that certain things will impact that. But again, even that, that's already at the stage of endothelial injury, right? So I think if you want to in, impact disease progression, you have to figure out the right time. And I suspect early is going to be better. We saw the mm -hmm. same thing with Oseltamivir, right, and other medications for influenza. If you don't give it early, they're not beneficial at all. So I think in that vein, that's going to be part of what we have to address. And I do think echoing some of the data, you know, we see these reports coming out that, you know, mortality might be better or, the, you know, this proportion of patients received medication. 
but inherently they're not randomized and controlled. So there's a lot of bias and confounding factors in there. And to be honest, if you look at the onset of time, standard of care is rapidly changing for these patients. And so right. even month to month, comparison of those standard arms to a treatment arm are very difficult to say they're generalizable anymore. And so I think that's another part of the struggle you know, what is the natural course of disease with an evolving standard of care and higher numbers of patients who are in the hospital and being evaluated with the research? And how can we compare that appropriately at this point? Probably only through those prospective randomized controlled trials, where hopefully we can enroll very quickly, like the remdesivir trial is actually enrolling very fast. They have a ton of sites up and running now. We should have that on that fairly soon. Fair enough. Um, Dr. Marcel, and, uh, you know, talking about other other sort of treatment targets, other treatment options, uh, what do you think about uh, using use of interferon therapy uh, and convalescent plasma for COVID-19? So, uh, good question. Looking at uh, interferon therapy, um, looking at uh, monoclonal antibodies, anti-IL-6 agents, a lot of that is really focusing on the, the inflammatory storm part of the, the disease. And um, certainly there are lots of cytokine um, uh, storm that's being uh, produced when a person becomes very ill with COVID-19. And the theory is that uh, if we use these anti-IL-6 agents or, or agents that block the this inflammatory storm, then perhaps we can stave off or reduce some of the impacts of the virus uh, with severe disease like the ARDS and, and so forth. Um, so in theory, it it seems like it would be a good idea. There's what we have again is a paucity of data. So we have some case series um, from um, from China that people were given um, tocilizumab, um, for example, and they you know had some decreased uh, inflammatory markers, um, which is fine. But you know from a, a clinical improvement standpoint, that's where we really want to see a lot of the the information, and it's hard to it's hard to tell when there is not a control group whether or not uh, the people who got better got better because they were going to get better anyways, or they got better because they got anti-inflammatory agents. So I think uh, there's definitely a theoretical um, a, a theoretical point to these these sort of agents, and I think they should be investigated. Uh, there's not a lot of data to support using them routinely, so. Um, Again, from a hope level, um, you know, this is a maybe moderate, depending on if the patient has a cytokine storm. So um, I know it depends is not always the most satisfac um, satisfying answer, but that's really all that we can give when we don't have better data. Convalescent serum um, actually uh, really excites me. I think that there's probably some um, there's some possibilities there. We still need to investigate it again to figure it out a little bit more. Um, the question with convalescent um, a serum is, so we know that we produce antibodies 
to the virus. Um, and uh, we have some data um, from non-human primates that there is, it's likely that once an individual, uh, at least, you know, from the from the primate data that once uh, once infected with SARS-CoV-2, uh, they were not able to reinfect the um, the animals. And so, does that mean that there is lasting immunity with um, if you've already been infected? So, in humans, you know, that still remains yet to be seen. We think, we hope. Um, there may be some degree of immunity. We don't know how long it lasts, um, and therefore, uh, there there may be a role for convalescent serum. And so, there's um, a study that is happening right now across the country where um, they're looking at giving convalescent ther uh, serum to people who are are sick with COVID-19, and they're you know collecting that that data and that information, and hopefully we'll be able to see some positive results. Um, it's it's something that I I don't know that I would. Um, recommend doing it in the outside of the context of actually studying what it does uh, mm -hmm. but I think there's some promise there um, intuitively just we need to make sure that the the antibodies are neutralizing antibodies and that they actually work the way that we hope that they work and that's why we have to do it in a study section uh, study manner if I can just add to that, I think too, um, going back when we talk about any of these treatments, if you go back to 2014, 2015, and you look at the data and the research that was happening, there were a lot of treatments employed that were employed because of the same fear, the same desperation, the same, I need to be able to do something, so let's try these things. And if you talk to the people who were close to the investigators, or doing the research, which we have several of our colleagues who were actively involved with that, our biocontainment unit team. We had Ebola patients here, we were doing research. Every one of them will tell you patients died because we employed treatments that we didn't know how to employ appropriately and were not researched appropriately. So I think even though we may look at these treatments and say, gosh, there's hope with them, there's potential, we also have to remember everything we give has a counterbalance and there's a risk. The lopinavir, the ritonavir, you know, any of these medications, the azithromycin, you know, and combination with hydroxychloroquine, we're seeing more carpental arrhythmias there. We're seeing people taking medications that they shouldn't and putting themselves at risk because they think it might help them. And so there is a cost, and that cost may very well be in human lives if we are not cautious about how we employ things, even though we all want to make people better. We don't want to be the people who are inadvertently hurting people because we don't know how to select a treatment appropriately. No, I hear, I hear the common theme here is that, you know, could these drugs or therapies work? Yes, but they shouldn't be deployed sort of indiscriminately is what you're saying. And, and I think I think we're learning that as we go, and we've learned this in the past too, like you pointed out. So switching gears to uh, the next question that I have for you is people who are severely becoming hypoxemic, you know, they're going down the path, we're not able to sort of um, reverse it. Um, there was talk about intubating early in the beginning of this pandemic, let's intubate early. And of course, part of that was coming from uh, sort of a healthcare worker safety standpoint, but from purely the disease standpoint, uh, would you 
what are your thoughts on using high-flow nasal cannula or uh, non-invasive ventilation if you can? Of course, it has to be appropriate. What are your thoughts on that? Dr. Cockett, sorry. Sure. Um, in a perfect world, I would love to use that non-invasive ventilation. We've had more and more data showing that in severe hypoxic respiratory, hypoxemic respiratory failure, that those non-invasive ventilatory methods work and work well, and in many scenarios improve outcomes, right? The minute we commit someone to a ventilator, we see, you know, diaphragmatic dysfunction. We see increasing um, weakness and myopathy and neuropathies evolving with many of these therapies that we're employing and long-term impact, right, even in just quality of life when you look at post-ICU syndrome scenarios for long cases of intubation and ICU stay, which we know these patients are once you commit them. The caveat to that and the balance that I think is hard to strike is there's concern about the amount of aerosol that can be generated by these non-invasive methods. There is some data that there is some aerosol. We're all familiar from the ICU standpoint of seeing those leaks, right? And knowing that that can happen. And the counterbalance is we've also seen very high percentages of healthcare workers become infected and deplete a healthcare workforce. If you lose your ICU staffing, if your healthcare workforce depletes, you can't take care of these patients any. And so I think this is not just a decision that is being based solely on pathophysiology, but it's being based on a large pandemic triage scale. How can we optimize the balance between providing the best care for the patients and maintaining a workforce in the safest possible way that we can, given the limitations we're facing between ventilators, supplies, healthcare workers, testing, negative pressure rooms. Medications. Um, Right. All of these things, like our medications to sedate patients, you know, it, we're looking at a later peak here in Omaha than many areas of the country. Um, and in part, some of that might be some of the very early mitigation strategies that happened here. But we're facing a surge upcoming to us later in April. And we're already looking at the fact that the medications we would use to actually keep our patients on ventilators may not be available. And what are we gonna do if now the ventilator isn't the problem, it's the fact that I can't sedate you or I can't use neuromuscular blockade if I need to. And right. how are we gonna deal with that? So, so I think there's a lot of things in there. I don't think it's as simple as best case scenario just for the patient at this point. I think this is best case scenario on all sides. Overall, how can we do the greatest good with the least harm on for everybody in there? Um, you know, and it is, it's the highest standard of care in the safest environment that we can provide for as long as we possibly can provide it really is kind of the mantra that we're trying to follow. Right. And so in in, in that same flow, um, you know, patient, these patients who are getting severely hypoxemic, if you choose to intubate them, right? This is, intubation is one of the highest risk aerosol generating procedures, like we know with very high odds ratio. For example, the odds ratio for um, high flow is 0.4 from a study back from the SARS uh, time, um, which is not much, but for intubation is pretty high. So um, specifically with respect to your intubation strategy, do you what do you recommend about video laryngoscopy or over the you know scope intubations? Yeah, so for us, um, we are airing more towards the side of video laryngoscopy. And actually we've started um, deploying the use of the intubation boxes. So New England Journal just had a publication on this where they show the video of the aerosol and the impact of the box. Um, and you can't do a direct laryngoscopy with the box the same way, just the mechanics of it don't work. But if you have a video scope 
and you have a box, there's very little aerosol that comes through that process and extends beyond the box. And so I think, you know, we were already moving towards avoiding DLs when we could and using video scopes. We're actually not trying to use the bronchoscope as much again um, for intubation purposes as opposed to trying to do a rapid sequence intubation with neuromuscular blockade and use a video scope um, for that purpose to be kind of as fast as possible as we can that way. Um, but I think it's really looking at what you can do medically what you can do engineering wise with something like a box to try and minimize the aerosol that that procedure generates because you're absolutely right it produces a high amount of aerosol and it's high risk we also have protocols depending on where you are in the hospital icu operating room for areas on how many people can be in the room variations of ppe that we use depending on the airflow and even delayed egress times from the aerosol generation based on the air exchanges in the rooms so that's an interesting point, Dr. Marcel. And so, uh, you know, I know a lot of institutions, including ours, have they've acquired these transparent boxes that are little, you know, holes for, you know, entering your arms and manipulating your intubation devices. But what if you do not have access to such a box, right? Um, what are the other sort of strategies to mitigate that aerosol sort of production during intubation uh, from infection control standpoint? So um, a lot of it might uh, come back to hinge on the PPE that's available for the person who is doing the intubation. And so certainly that would be a situation where you would want to maximize um, and so when, when I say that, we're talking about, okay, a person's going to have on their gloves, they're going to have on their gowns, uh, they'll have a face shield. Um, and in, in some cases, so we can talk about having a 95 mask available versus using a PAPR, actually, if they are um, doing uh, such a high-risk procedure. And so I think uh, if there's, it's all about mitigating the the amount of virus that could potentially be spread. And one way to look at it is to adjust the way that you perform the, the procedure. And the other way is to make sure that the PPE that the um, performer is wearing is completely maximized to avoid any potential for them to become exposed. I think too, in line so with that, I was just gonna say, you know, using the uh, neuromuscular blockade, if you don't cough, you're not generating the same amount of aerosol. In addition, we often move to an AMBU or an anesthesia bag, right, as we're preemptively pre-oxygenating for intubation, but that by itself does carry some aerosol risk. And so considering how you pre-oxygenate and doing that natively with the patient, as opposed to planning manual bagging, if you can avoid that, also decreases the amount of aerosols for that procedure. So really thinking through the procedure. And then this is a scenario where I think you really have to decide how good are you at intubating and how good are you with a video laryngoscope. And if it is not your strength, or if you have anesthesia routinely coming to intubate and you don't intubate much in your ICU, but you intubate every once in a while and some of the easier cases, if you will. <laughs> when I say that, I know none of them in our ICs are necessarily easy, but there's variations of difficulty in airway assessment, risk of going down one of those difficult airway algorithms. 
you really, I think, also want to pause and consider who is the best person to intubate this patient, not just because it's a procedure that I could do, but because there are other people at risk in the room if I prolong the procedure because I can't get the tube in. And so I do think that is certainly something to consider in this um, that we maybe don't consider in the same way in the past where we would say, oh, you know, you can do your one or two attempts, then you call for backup or you execute your plan B for air recovery. You don't want to do that here. You want that first pass attempt to be a very high likelihood of success. Right. I, I, I cannot stress that enough. I think at the end of the day, the balance between healthcare worker safety and getting uh, first pass success is is the is the sort of, you know, golden cup here. All right, so uh, talking quickly about other medications that have come under sort of, uh, you know, question in this time is the role of ACE inhibitors and um, ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers, right? Uh, question is, of course, if the patient's in shock, you stop them. But if they're not in shock and they've been on it from before, we know how the virus uses the um, ACE2 uh, receptor uh, for a cell entry. You know, so should we just be stopping these medications? Uh, will that kind of help prevent the virus entry? So uh, good question. And so the theory behind that is that these medications, the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs, they are going to um, increase the risk of severe disease because they will result in upregulation of those ACE2 receptors uh, on the outside of the, of the cells. And so if the ACE2 receptors are upregulated, then that's more opportunities for SARS-CoV-2 to then um, bind and enter into the cell and cause disease. So, and if there are more of these receptors, then more virus can bind. And then um, with more viremia, perhaps there could be more severe disease. Um, and so the issue is, this is all theoretical. Um, and um, the, this, the concern was raised um, maybe about a month and a half, maybe six weeks ago um, in a letter to the editor and um, looking at the, the data that uh, we have so far, and this has been reviewed by American College of Cardiology, um, as well as the Heart Failure Society of America, American Heart Association, and European Cardiology Societies, and they've all looked at this and um, not actively recommend discontinuing the ACE inhibitors or the ARBs um, unless there's another reason to do so, like a patient being in shock. And so I think this is something that definitely gathered a lot of attention, uh, but so far really hasn't got a lot of legs. Um, and so we still need to keep looking at the we still need to keep looking at what the data shows us um, in terms of outcomes in individuals, clinical outcomes in individuals who are on these medicines who have um, COVID-19 rather than making decisions based on uh, theoretical concerns. Right, and in the same sort of aspect, right, we talking about how intimately the patient's cardiovascular status is related to outcomes as per reports so far that, you know, if you have cardiovascular disease, your mortality risk is higher um, because it's a comorbidity. Would you recommend, 
you know, once these patients come in, and especially if they're getting sicker, to preemptively start statins. Um, and if if not, I, I I'm from your expressions, I'm I'm kind of guessing the answer. But if you're gonna go that way, when would you consider um, statins in this population for the critically ill ones with COVID nineteen? I'll take it first. <laughs> so I think. There's so much interest in the impact of statins, right? And we know that statins play a critical role in cardiovascular disease, but that role is truly related to atherosclerotic disease primarily. And the cardiovascular mortality in, that is increasing from COVID-19 related infections, we're seeing myocarditis that's viral in nature. We're seeing arrhythmias with and some arrhythmias with prolonging QTC, depending on the medications that are being given. And they're seeing fatal arrhythmias happening even later in the course, but no, not necessarily the classic indications for why we would start a statin with um, atherosclerotic disease. Now, there's a caveat to this that's evolving that I think we just don't have a great answer to, and that is the question of Again, going back to the idea of how much um, endothelial damage is happening and would there potentially be at-risk patients. But those patients who already have underlying cardiovascular disease, many of them are already going to be on a statin. Or they were taken off a statin because they had bad adverse events to the statin already. It is just such a mainstay, like an ARB or an ACE for cardiovascular disease, that I don't think we would necessarily be looking to start it in prevention status because it's not going to prevent myocarditis, right? It's not going to prevent QTC prolongation and arrhythmias and VTs in the absence of that kind of disease. It's not stabilizing a plaque somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. But it, there are going to be patients who in the setting of hypoxemia are going to have a primary cardiac event because they have narrow vessels already. They are at that high level of stenosis that would require intervention. This is them failing their stress test because they developed COVID infections and hypoxic. In that cohort of patients, there's going to be a role for optimal cardiac management, including statin use. And I think that's where we really need to partner with our cardiology colleagues and decide what the indication is and why we're using it. And we still want to employ the best standards of care for these patients when appropriate. That includes potentially going to the cath lab with a patient who is a PUI or possibly COVID positive with substantial precautions on PPE use and transport mechanisms to prevent against spread of infection to uninfected people, both patients and healthcare workers. No, fair. And I think you you are uh, bringing me to an, a question that's not listed. So I'll, I'm just going to throw it out to both of you is, you know, there's been reports about hypercoagulability coming in uh, coming in with uh, COVID-19 status. Uh, the report of CRRT circuits clotting. There's reports about increased venous thromboembolisms, pulmonary embolisms. So we've talked about how we have to be judicious with our investigation news. Uh, because the infection risk. So clinically speaking, right, you, you know, barring sending D-dimers Q12 hours, which is, sounds fine for research, but we know that that's not, you know, practical everywhere. When would you think that something else is going on with this patient in acute respiratory failure? So, you know, when would you think we should look for the non-ischemic cardiomyopathy? What would make you look for the VTE, the PE? Um, clinically speaking? 
So that's that's such a hard question because, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, if they are getting worse and they're not responding, but that's what a lot of them are doing. And um, it's, you know, I, I think it's a situation where you're trying um, optimal, optimal supportive therapy and um, despite best efforts, you are not able to to keep up. And you know that you know that they have COVID nineteen, um, but the their clinical picture um, seems to be less cons less consistent with an ARDS um, than uh, you expect. But somehow you're having trouble oxygenating them. Um, you know, that certainly could be a, a, an indication for you to give it a shot um, and uh, and look for, for other reasons. But, I mean, I'll see if Dr. Cockett has any other thoughts, but my, my experience with um, consulting on our very sick patients in the ICU is that, you know, almost everything seems to be wrong and there isn't a, there isn't a set thing that really tells you go down this pathway um, because it's just a very, very challenging clinical situation. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, I I know we're seeing more clotting anecdotally. But we see clotting on CRT circuits and sepsis all the time. We all complain about it on a regular basis. So it's not that we haven't seen those problems before, but we're very attuned to it because we're in the middle of a pandemic. So many of our patients have it and we are desperate to find things to help them. We also know that we have been surprised by the rate of PE before. Take the COPD literature and autopsy literature there. We know that this happens not infrequently. The question is, beyond DVT prophylaxis, which we should be doing in our patients. Is there something else? Does higher levels of anticoagulation make a difference? You know, it comes back to the questions of, does aspirin make a difference, you know, with endothelial injury mechanisms? We've been down these roads many times with many other infectious entities, even to the point of looking at heparin utilization for prevention of ventilator-associated pneumonias. None of them have been shown to be effective or we would have been doing it already. And we have patients that have been in our ICUs with multiple other coronaviruses because we have several that are seasonal that circulate all the time. And then we've seen SARS with the original SARS-CoV, which will probably be SARS-CoV-1 eventually, syndicated, right? We've seen this with the MERS virus. And we just haven't seen a way to improve that injury and that risk of clotting that doesn't, again, come with the counterbalance of people who bleed and have catastrophic events from bleeding, we start moving towards giving anticoagulation or lytics or something else without knowing. So again, there's a high risk scenario here and how do you pick who it is? I agree, clinically, if your imaging or your ultrasound looks like more pulmonary edema, you're seeing evidence of more right heart strain. I think we do need to be thinking about these things. I do think we need to pay attention to DVTs and risk of catheter-related clots because these patients are staying in the ICU for a very long time. And the duration of time a patient stays in an ICU with a central line or dialysis catheter in place, the higher the likelihood we will see of finding clot form. We already know that. So when you put these two things together, I'm not entirely surprised that we're seeing it, 
I just don't know what to do with it other than our standard of care right now because I'm not sure if I'm going to help my patients or harm them other than to be very aggressive about imaging and looking for clot. If I'm thinking about it, I'm going to have a low threshold to do ultrasounds myself, to do an echo myself bedside to get formal imaging for that. Got it. So, you know, we're five minutes out. Um, I'm assuming that there's some issues with posting questions because I don't see any coming uh, towards me. And I'm assuming 500 people are not having questions is a little odd. Uh, so for everybody who's attending, uh, we will put out an email. Um, actually, I have been uh, told that it is, give me a second, ignore my TV background, uh, but it is a webinar at chestnet dot org so that's again webinar at chestnet.org uh, and if you send us your questions i will either personally answer them or direct them to dr cress uh, dr cress uh, marcel and our coffee i do want to summarize what we learned today because we did go through uh, quite a bit so what you uh, and correct me if i'm wrong along the way so number one uh, you said think about ordering chest cts if your you know uh, labs are not or your investigations uh, are not showing you that you have COVID, but you have suspicion it might help add to your diagnostic probability one but be cognizant that you then restrict resources because those rooms need to be clean and you're exposing personnel so that was one two if your nasopharyngeal swabs are negative we don't entirely know the sort of negative predictive value or uh, you know sensitivity from that standpoint so consider repeating the NP swab again and if you're still continuing to have um, suspicion to consider a closed uh, lower respiratory um, sample uh, if the patient's intubated obviously um, thinking about talking about steroids we really don't know what to do with them sounds like uh, so we should probably like you said st stick with our standard of care which is to use them for appropriate indications that we've always used them for and not make this a standalone indication as yet um, talking about antivirals uh, jury's out uh, there's a lot of medals that were being handed out um, I didn't hear any goals so I'm going to move past that question uh, plasma uh, trials have started in New York City. I know a lot of big centers have started enrolling. Uh, for people who are considering enrolling their centers, please reach out to the American Red Cross and the FDA. They both have good resources on how you can be involved with these processes, maybe with a center near you, so you can pool your resources together. Um, and that's a good way to start, right? Or is there any other way, Dr. Cockett, Dr. Marcellin? That's what we did. We went through the Red Cross and the and our uh, common organization. I think that's probably the right answer for now. I think there are more and more studies that you're going to see rising. So I think there's very quickly going to be more options available to enroll into these studies. Um, but I think that's the first place to start with looking at it. And then as more NIH-based studies launched with this, you'll have more opportunities, I think, to enroll as a different site as the platforms become available in a way that we can generalize that out and enroll people. <laughs> Got it. Uh, talking about uh, using high flow non-invasive, the you know uh, the initial scare that only use nasal cannula to six liters probably might be overstated as long as you're using adequate personal protective equipment. Uh, so you know that is a good way to either prevent intubation or give these patients time to um, you know so that they don't all require intubations. Um, talking about using video laryngoscopy, it's a good idea. Minimizing exposures with intubation boxes uh, is a good idea. Um, talking about ACE and ARBs sounds like uh, all the heart societies have so far 
uh, stressed that they should not be stopped in as long as there's no shock situation because there's still standard of care for the other diseases the patient has. Uh, and finally, be safe. Uh, we continue to ask for personal protective equipment, right? That's critical. We are still short of it. A lot of these questions that I have here are because we are worried about healthcare, say healthcare workers' safety. So um, keep the pressure on your local resources to uh, continue helping you out. Well, thank you, Dr. Cockett. Thank you, Dr. Marcellin. Um, this is very uh, much appreciated that you took time out. And um, hopefully we'll see you soon on a chess platform again. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Thanks All so right, much. Guys. Bye, everybody. <laughs>